Welcome to the Beef Watch Podcast. I'm Aaron Berger, a Nebraska Extension Beef Educator. For today's Beef Watch Podcast, we're going to be taking a break from our usual format of discussing Beef Watch newsletter articles. Today's Beef Watch Podcast is a producer's perspective, and I'm joined by Mike Wallace, who ranches together with his wife, Fran, on a diversified sheep, goat, and cow-calf operation near Nelson. Thanks for joining me today, Mike. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for asking, Aaron. Mike, before we dive into and talk about the different enterprises that are part of your operation there, share with us a little more about yourself, your background, and how you arrived at where you are today. Well, I was, I was born in 1946 on a very small dairy farm in, in South Central Ohio. Went to school there and uh, graduated, uh, went to Vietnam on my senior trip. After I got out of the service, I uh, went to college, got a Bachelor of Science in Agricultural Science from the, uh, Wilmington College, a small diversified Quaker-oriented school in Wilmington, Ohio. Uh, went on, got a Master's of Science in, in uh, Ruminant Nutrition from the University of Kentucky. From there, I spent five years managing a thousand-head sheep research flock for the University of Illinois at Dixon Springs Agricultural Center in Stream, Southern Illinois. You don't think of Illinois as that, but they raised cotton there. From there, I took a job in 1978 as the Sheep Operations Manager at the Meat Animal Research Center in Clay Center, Nebraska. And I served in that function plus uh, several other pasture management uh, committee chairman, uh, etc. Uh, until I retired from that position in 2012. Uh, sometime in the mid-90s, uh, my wife and I, we run a small sheep operation and raised four children near uh, Pauline, Nebraska, on 20 acres. In the mid-90s, we bought a, a property near Nelson, north of Nelson, Nebraska, uh, 240 acres, and... 2000, I think it was, we started moving stock down here, quit renting it out, and we've gone from there. We added another quarter section. Right now, we've got uh, 400 acres in two different parcels. We'll run two different bands there, and um, that's where we're at now. Mike, I think you're unique in that I don't really know many other operations in Nebraska that have a combination of sheep, goats, and cow-calf. Also, I would say your sheep operation is somewhat unique in that you have hair sheep. Tell us about the different species that are part of your operation there. I think giving emphasis to the goats and the hair sheep. Why did you choose those? What do they provide for you? What does your management look like with those? Well, our, our management scheme is, is geared around uh, uh, holistic programs. I, I'm very strong believer in, in the holistic management of pasture. We have a total of 400 acres, as I said. One uh, one parcel is 240 acres contiguous, and the other one is a quarter section, a couple miles north. The centerpiece of the operation, from from my interests, are the sheep. Our sheep will run about 200 uh, half Roman off, uh, roughly half Roman off, white dorper. Katahdin, uh, St. Croix mix for the other half. These are hair sheep. They're very highly prolific. I, I was very instrumental and very knowledgeable about the, the research course that was done at the Meat Animal Research Center. I was the one who uh, 
uh, in effect, made the, the importation of the Romanoff happen and the valuation of those of that breed. It's very highly prolific. These ewes drop, half-blood ewes drop 210 to 240%. That's a drop rate. That's the number of lambs born per ewe lambing. And they're very good at taking care of their own and, and etc. The cattle, we run about uh, right at 50 head of, of mama cows right now. They're primarily Angus, but some other oddball stuff. My wife likes a little color like belted and stuff like that, but primarily Angus. The uh, goats, we run about 40 head of, of commercial. These are boars and Spanish cross uh, nannies. The livestock are run on pasture as much as we can. The cattle and sheep are always run together, fed together, grazed together, except for a three-week period in May when the ewes are lambing. I put them in a separate paddock for that because I don't like the thought of, of those uh, two or three week old calves galloping through a, a little tassel of used lambing. Uh, so for three weeks they're, they're not together. Other than that, they are the sheep and the cattle are run together and fed together at 12 months out of the year. Uh, the goats, they're much more sensitive to weather conditions. I'll need to bring those in sometime in January to February. And we kid those in, in lot barns in starting April 1st. And we don't send them back out to pasture with the other stock, uh, the, the families, until the kids are about a month old, usually in early May. When do your hair sheep? The, uh, the hair sheep are our lambs start May the 5th for a three-week period. May, they're almost always done by May 26th. They, I get, they get moved back whether they're done or not. They're just a few stragglers and aren't done occasionally. Mike, tell us a little more about hair sheep. I think for many of our listeners, they, they're probably familiar with more of the wool sheep breeds, but talk about where did the hair sheep originate, the development of the composite or crossbred ewes you have, why you selected those, and, and how your management of hair sheep differs from those that if you had wools. Well, the primary difference is that, that the hair sheep don't, don't require shearing. They don't have a commercially wool to produce, and they don't need to be sheared for their well-being. If you have wool sheep, you're going to need to shear those probably at least once a year for the well-being of the animal, animal care issues, and their survival. Uh, wool sheep will get maggots. Uh, these hair sheep, I've never seen a maggot in a hair sheep, and wool maggot, that is. You get a maggot in a tail dock or something like that. The uh, hair sheep don't require docking because the reason they dock wool sheep, cut the tails off of uh, wool sheep lambs, because they have long tail that hangs down lower bit, below their hock. All they got to do is get a little scour on that wool, and they get some manure on that, and that draws flies, and you get maggots in it. So you need to cut that tail off, dock that tail for that well-being. You don't need to do that with hair sheep. Hair sheep, uh, oh, they've been around for a long time. There's uh, Almost all of the islands in the West, in the Caribbean, uh, had hair sheep develop different breeds on different islands. Uh, they were brought over to help to support the, the, the slaves that were brought in from Africa on those islands. And each island had its own, ended up having its own breed of hair sheep. Hair sheep started to become of interest in the United States in the mid-1950s. Sometime around about then, the, the value of wool, relatively speaking, uh, began to decline, where it, there were some people started seeing that because of the advent of, of synthetic fibers and the cost of wool production and, and the cost of wool, 
uh, and the relatively cheap production of, of the synthetic fibers that the, the demand for wool was going to go down. And mid 1950s, a man named Adam Peel started developing a, a line of hair sheep, uh, which were made up from Wiltshire horns, which was a natural shedding sheep from Britain. Uh, he crossed in uh, some St. Croix, which is uh, a white hair breed from St. Croix Islands, and some other breed, uh, Barbados Black Belly from Barbados, etc., and developed the breed that he named Katahdin, K-A-T-A-H-D-I-N. And that breed is, is named after the, the highest mountain in Maine. So right now, I believe Katahdin is probably the most popular breed in terms of number of sheep in the United States, last thing I read in terms of registered sheep. That's hopefully, is there any questions about the hair sheep? Did I cover that good enough? Yeah, no, I think that's really good, Mike. I think for a lot of folks, they think, sheep you think wool and if they're not familiar with sheep just not familiar with hair sheep these shed off every spring you know just the management of them looks different yeah. than it does in many ways for wool sheep and I, I appreciate you going into the detail and explaining the origin of those and and how that works uh, tell us more about your hair sheep operation you mentioned you start lambing about the third of may what does that look like uh, just kind of take us through a production cycle uh, with your hair sheep, the integration with the cows, and and what that looks like. Okay, well, the the, the sheep. Uh, we'll, I'll start off with breeding. I put my bucks in with with uh, uh, east of the flock, east of the two new flocks, on uh, December fifteenth. These uh, Romanov crosses have a slightly shorter gestation period than many many other breeds do. These are all half Romanov used, essentially half Romanov used. So that that uh, most sheep is five months less a week. It's 143 days, or excuse me, 146, 147 days. Uh, these sheep, these half Romanoffs are closer to 143, 144 days. So the first lambs will normally be born May the 5th, and they would have been bucks in December 15th. Uh, they run with them until uh, after spring green up, uh, usually about the middle of April, about a month before their uh, month three or four weeks before we're going to start lambing. Uh, spring green, green up would have occurred here. I would be done supplementing these animals. They're running with the cattle that time through the winter. Uh, right now, and they graze. I rotationally graze through the winter. Right now, I'm, I'm feeding the equivalent of, uh, well, one band has got 43,000 pounds of animal in it, uh, and I'm feeding uh, about 1,200, 1,200-pound bale of high-quality alfalfa hay every fourth, third or fourth day to them to supplement the protein that's not in the pasture. That's my cheapest source of protein, I feel, is, uh, is in alfalfa hay. It's in high-quality. Anyway, uh, some middle of April sometime, uh, we'll bring those ewes in. Uh, we'll run through, pull the bucks off, get the bucks away from them. Those ewes will be vaccinated for... Uh, I uh, use co-vaccinate for anaerobes and tetanus before they lamb so that uh, the colostrum has high levels of antibodies for Clostridium perfringens type C and D, primarily type C, and also tetanus uh, to protect the lambs until they get a little older on them. They'll start like they'll be on usually on May the 3rd or 4th. I'll take those you separate away, separate them away from the cows, put them on a particular paddock which has 
a fair amount of cover in terms of, of hills and doesn't flood and it's got a few trees, maybe some cedar trees in it for a little protection from inclement weather. Usually the only thing we get is, is cold rains. They'll start lambing May the 5th. I check them every day. I do not do anything other than that. Now, if I have a ewe that gets upside down on her back, I'll flip her over. Maybe once every three or four years, I, w I will assist a ewe having a lamb that was malpresented, but very unusual. I, I pick up deads, uh, keep track of them. I don't tag individual animals. Uh, individual animal means nothing to me. It's the flock I'm after. At the end of that lambing period, roughly May the 25th or something like that, 26th, when I think they're done lambing, I try to have enough pad, I have a large enough paddock there that hopefully those you not hopefully, those ewes will have enough feed to last them so I don't have to daily feed them. I do not want to disrupt them during lambing. If I leave them alone, they do a very good job. My drop rates on my ewes are two, uh, on the, on the flock that has nothing but matures, this is two year olds, no older lambing in it, are 210, 210 to 240%. My normal mortality, lamb mortality rate, this is from birth through sale date, which is in usually uh, September, October, is uh, normally last, last year was 11% on a 200, and I think, I can't remember what the overall was, it right to right 200% drop rate. I, those use and their lambs, the families go back with the cows and calves. The cows start calving uh, April 15th on pasture, except for the first calf heifers. I put them in a lot up close to the barn so I can watch them. Uh, if anybody needs any help, uh, they do it on their own pretty much. We tag calves and keep track of whose, whose cow is, whose calf is, who goes with which cow. Uh, that starts April 15th. Uh, let's see, we've got the ewes up to, uh, working them in August. When we get up to, towards the end of August, I do not castrate my buck lambs. These half Roman off buck lambs will start becoming fertile when they're about three and a half, four months old. From, uh, my past experience, I know I need to get the buck lambs away from their mothers and their sisters before September 1st. So I'll run the flock through, uh, sort the buck lambs off. Uh, put them in a lot or separate pasture. I've done different things in different years. Uh, most recently, I, I just sell them. Straight off the use, they would average about 70 pounds. Those buck they have averaged about 70 pounds in the past, uh, say the first week in September. The ewe lambs I would normally pick back with their mothers. They would run with their mothers until I'm ready to sort off what I'm going to keep or sell. And I usually, I get that done before the end of October. I would sell the ewe lambs sometime in October. The last couple of years, the ewe lambs have been uh, highly desirable for a high price for them. The ewe lambs you retain and develop, Mike, how does that look? Uh, how do they come into your flock, and, and what does that look like? Okay, I'll keep a set of ewe lambs to replace but I got two, I run two flocks and I'll keep uh, replacements of one flock one year and the other flock the other year. So this last year I kept uh, replacement of 15 head of, of ewe lambs for the uh, uh, north flock. Yeah, for the north flock. Uh, I let those, the, the ones I'm going to keep, I'll, I'll sell off the ewe lambs I don't want. I'll leave those ones I want to keep with their mothers 
until Thanksgiving time. Thanksgiving then time, I'll sort those ewe lambs off and I'll put them in a lot and keep them in that lot through this first winter until spring green up. They get bred in that lot the same time as their mothers do. Uh, at, at spring green up, when I, you know, whenever I bring the ewes in or whenever I need to quit, when I don't have to keep supplementing protein, uh, I'll put those ewe lambs back out with their mother's flock and they'll stay out there with those and lamb with them and et cetera. So the year, the rest of it. like I say, you're pasture lambing your first, those ewe lambs, yes. right with the yes. rest. Yes, yes, yes. If I leave them alone, they can do a good job. You want to start messing with them and feeding them every day, that's a different story. I don't do that. So really, your, your sheep, aside from vaccination and a little bit of supplemental feeding, uh, they're getting pretty minimal in terms of handling going through a shoot or things like that. Is that accurate? Yes, that's true. So, I minimize that. I, I'm lazy. I'm just going to say not any routine uh, worming or things like that. At least I don't remember you mentioning that. I have not worn my youth lock since 2008. I think that would be kind of unusual, Mike. What do you contribute or what do you attribute uh, your success with that? I know for a lot of small ruminant producers, uh, parasites are a major issue. What's your management practices that you think uh, enable you to get along as well as you do with the plan you have in place? Well, it's kind of a long story. I believe a big piece of it is my, my pasture management. Part of that has to do with I'm running in with the cattle. Cattle and sheep do not share. They share the same species of of internal parasites, gastrointestinal parasites, but they're not cross-infective across different species between cattle and sheep. The primary problematic internal parasite, gastrointestinal parasite of sheep is Homolcus contortus, barber pole worm. And in some parts of the United States, it's, uh, uh, it's, it is a major worm problem in cattle. But their most research has shown that those Sheep homonchus contortus do not infect cattle and vice versa. Cattle homonchus contortus do not infect sheep. They'll not infect sheep. Now, goats and sheep share the same species of, of uh, they're cross-infected, but not cattle. So part of it has to do with uh, my holistic plan grazing. So they're, they're on, I've got, the home place has got, the 240 acres got, I think it's uh, 18 uh, paddocks, permanent fence paddocks, and their rotation of graze through those, except for that uh, three-week lambing period for those years. Uh, the North Place has got uh, 13 paddocks on, on the quarter section. Uh, I think that's a big part of it. Uh, I mentioned that I did more use up until August of 2008. I had I had always been trained and believed from being in southern Ohio and southern Illinois that if you're going to raise sheep, you're going to have to worm them. There's a veterinarian, I can't remember whether, Bill Shuloff from Ohio State pointed out one time that sheep and, and their internal parasites develop together. And it's not in the best interest of a parasite to kill its host. And that maybe what we're seeing is that if there's a, a, a internal parasite problem, it's just a symptom of a problem is not the cause. It's like having a brain having a headache is maybe a symptom of a brain tumor, but it's 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 not necessarily the cause. So if you're warming, you're treating the symptom, you're not doing anything to eliminate the cause. 
anyway, I used to, to worm routinely, and I believed you would have to worm. I was down to uh, worming uh, my flock, ewe flock, uh, once a year, uh, shortly before the lamb. I would worm them in, in April. And I've done that for several years, and then all of a sudden I started having this problem with, with losing lamb, not lambs, but ewes, actually, starting in late July from, obviously, parasites. And so I grew, gosh, what's, what's this doing? How come this is happening? So I won that one year, and I decided after listening to Bill Shulaw talk that uh, uh, I'm going to wait and see. Because I'd be like, gee, if I just put it off a couple of weeks, I was going to work those years anyhow. We're going to have to make a special trip here to shoot and lose a couple in the process before I got there. So I'm not going to worm them uh, in April, which the most of the veterinarian uh, recommendations at that time was, well, you need to eliminate the, the, the parasites in those ewes before they start lambing if the ewes are going to be on pasture because they'll just contaminate all your pastures. So you warm them to get rid of that parasite load before pastures get contaminated. So I did that, and the last time I warmed them was August 2008. I said, I'm going to wait and see how you until I got clinical signs before I warm them again. And this is now 2020. Well, 2021 season is over, and I have not seen clinical signs, so I haven't warmed again. Mike, do you think the hair sheep provide a little bit of pest or parasite resistance, or is there differences among breed based on your experience and your work there at Mark? Uh, there's definitely differences in breeds. Uh, some of the hair sheep breeds are noted for having some resistance to parasites. Uh, whether that's the biggest issue or not, I, I, I'm not really sure. Uh, the Barbados and the St. Croix breeds have been shown in research studies to, to be more resistant to internal parasite infestations than other breeds. But I had the same breed types before August 2008 as I have now. I did not change breeds. I was running the same breed types before. I honestly believe what, what, what happened was that I was setting those ewes up to becoming warming because they had a natural uh, infestation of internal parasites, which is part of the sheep, just like the bugs in the rumen are part of the sheep that help them digest their food. Uh, there is research, I saw research in uh, Michigan State where they had done slaughter study with lambs, uh, going slaughters, large numbers, the lambs which harbored a tapeworm, of all the lambs that harbored tapeworm at slaughter, none of them had mnemonic lung lesions, uh, uh, symptoms, lung lesions that would have been due to, to baby lamb pneumonia. The only lambs that had mnemonic lung lesions, did, they did not have a tapeworm. So that there, there is some indication that maybe those weren't serve a purpose to the animal. Anyway, I am not sure where I'm going with this. <laughs> well, I think it, I guess I think, Mike, it, you know, I think we, I would say over the last 70, 80 years, and there's no doubt that uh, the development of insecticides has uh, had benefits. I, I think there's no doubt about that, but I think there's also maybe some unintended consequences that utilizing those insecticides has had. And I think uh, some of the things you shared, management practices, uh, natural pests resistance, there's more to the system, I think, than we sometimes realize. And I, I just appreciate you sharing your experience and and also just the research that you've done and also your work there at Mark and looking at other research. Uh, maybe we need to think a little differently sometimes around how we address 
uh, specifically internal parasites and how we think about them. Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. That's, uh, I believe that I, I do honestly believe that if you have a flock problem or herd problem with, with internal parasites, that you need to look at the cause. I'll mention this one. It's probably not a little, I get criticized for this every once in a while. I feed my cattle and sheep the same mineral and it has copper in it. It's a very low copper level. It's the same trace mineral source that I fed the sheep since 1952 when I was a child. Uh, it was an all stock mineral up until sometime in the 1970s. And now they have, now it is labeled as do not feed the sheep, but I fed it. I fed it ever since 1952. There, it's a known fact that uh, free copper in the gut inhibits Simonkas contortus barbital worms. I have wormed, uh, before copper became a no-no in sheep, which happened sometime in the 1970s. Uh, I, I had wormed literally thousands of sheep with nicotine copper, black bay 40, nicotine copper sulfate. The copper sulfate would kill the Monkus contours and most of the other worms. The nicotine was put in there to kill the tapeworms. Um, and I can go into the reasons that the, the, it is labeled as do not feed the sheep now, but I'm not sure you really want me to. <laughs> well, I think again, it just uh, having some historical. I do not. This is not. This is not a. This is not like three thousand parts per million. Uh, this this is an assault base, and it's, it's right at two hundred eighty to three hundred parts per million copper, and it has an upper limit on it. Right. Because what happened in the in the in the seventies was that there was a major feed mill operation that uh, uh, screwed up and put too much copper in some sheep feed. Part of what happened. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think it's and just you, a good you can example. Cut this part out if you want. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's a good example of um, sometimes an event occurs, and I'll use an example here: the blizzard of '49, and uh, it's very memorable. And decisions are made going forward based on that event, and. Uh, Sometimes yeah. there's good reason for that, but also I think sometimes it's good to know historically why do we end up where we are and uh, can give yeah. you some perspective. So that's good. Well, I'll just mention this just for information. Maybe it ended up being anything. I don't know. What happened in the, in the late 60s is that when I was a child back in the 50s and early 60s, Suffolk was a rare breed. Suffolk sheep were a rare breed. You didn't see very many of them. That just weren't very many around. Southdown was king of the sheep breeds back then. Um, sometime in the 60s, they started became popular. By 1970, they had become very popular, the most popular breed of sheep. Many of the, most of those Suffolk were, or many of those Suffolk were being raised in, in Iowa and Illinois and Indiana and Ohio, uh, in the same regions which, uh, where the uh, uh, large hog operations, confinement hog operations were being developed. Hog, hog swine feed has a lot of copper in it. Swine manure has a lot of copper in it. You put swine manure on an alfalfa field, which is a primary feed source of those Suffolk sheep at that time, uh, alfalfa was, and alfalfa raised on high copper soils will accumulate copper. So you have a lot of copper being fed. Now, you couple, couple that with uh, research. I haven't been able to find that again. I read that, a hard copy of it at the research center, but I, I don't think I have a hard copy anymore. The study done in Britain 
characterize the uh, proper requirements and toxicity levels of, of several different breeds of sheep. Included in there was Texel, uh, Scandinavian breeds, I believe Finn sheep, uh, and Suffolk, and several other breeds. Well, all sheep have a certain requirement of copper. All of them have a requirement for copper, and they also have a, a an upper limit uh, a toxicity level. Well, the, the Suffolk have a, and the Texel have a very low copper requirement level and a low toxicity level. The Scandinavian breeds, such as possibly the Romanoff, the sheep that I know was in that study, and, and most of the other breeds have a much higher level requirement and toxicity level. So the, the sheep that I'm running are Romanoff crosses Scandinavian breed, which probably have a higher copper requirement and toxicity level certainly than the Texel or Suffolk does. Yet the, the, the requirement that if it has any added copper and has to be labeled do not feed the sheep uh, was made about because of Suffolk sheep, which were on probably being fed uh, alfalfa, which had very possibly raised on, on or fed alfalfa that had been raised on, on swine effluent fertilized fields. Coupled with a screw up in the female. <laughs> Sorry. No, again, I, I just, say you can cut this out if you want. I don't no, care. I think it's really interesting because I think it helps bring perspective on you know why do we see some of the things we see today, and I think it also just brings perspective. Sometimes we uh, we always do what we've always done because someone else has done it, but we don't know why. <laughs> and so, getting to the why yeah. sometimes bring I think some perspective. So I, I appreciate you showing sharing that story and and some background with that. Uh, let's shift gears a little bit now. You you run the sheep and your cow herd together. Talk about the goats. Yep. What do they bring to your operation? Uh, how do they integrate into the the sheep and the and the cattle? Okay, the, the goats are there uh, as much as anything else because of what they eat. Uh, the, the, my whole our whole plan here is is to make maximum use, sustainable use of of the pasturage. Uh, this four, roughly 400 acres was, when we bought it, was half crop ground and half native midgrass or mixed species range. And we planted everything back to grass. The goats are put in there because of uh, their dietary preferences, which are different from cattle or sheep. They eat things that the other two species do not eat. I really do believe that they... If they haven't eliminated, they're very much close to eliminated cedar tree incursions on our pastures. I have neighbors which uh, clear their pastures of, of cedar trees. Oh, I've got this one uh, just north of me here. He cleared it in 2012, and he's out there clearing it right now. Literally hundreds of cedar trees, ankle to knee high. Uh, and my pastures, I cleared those. And when I retired of young one of cedar trees in 2012, and I, I can count on my hand how many cedar trees I eliminate every year. I believe those goats, when the, they, they actually, at certain times of the year, I think it is, they will seek out cedar trees. They want to eat them. And those seedlings, you know, two or three inches tall, they eat them, I think. But I can't prove that. You can, I don't know if you can get rid of a cedar tree forest, eliminate the burning, but I, I do believe that it doesn't take very many goats to, to much reduce the, the incursion of cedar trees. 
the goats are are kid in lots starting April first. Anyway, they'll they'll run on pasture with the, the sheep and the cattle through the summer. Um, get bred uh, starting in uh, November first, roughly, uh, and. Uh, I'll leave them out in pastures as long as I think they're standing the weather all right. They do not take inclement weather very well. They don't like cold and wet, right? They don't like cold. They don't like wet. They love hot and dry. (laughs) I guess as you think about the goats, and I, there's kind of an old saying, if it won't hold water, it won't hold goats. So talk a little bit about your fence. How do you handle, uh, what's your perimeter fence look like on your property? How do you keep? Sheep, goats, cattle, where you want them? Um, I've got, well, the last time I figured I've got, I think it's uh, over 12 miles of fences. Uh, my perimeter fences were the original three to five strand barbed wire fences. Uh, I don't even keep them up very well. Every fence I've got has got a hot wire running on it along with it. Uh, at least one hot wire, eight to 12 inches off the ground. And I don't scrimp on the charger. I buy good hot chargers, and I run uh, two chargers on each separate property. One is a backup, so if one of them goes out, I can hook the whole fence up to the other one. My internal divider fences, many of my internal dividers, I should say most of my internal divider fences are two hot wires. Uh, one at uh, that 8 to 12 inches off the ground, the other one, uh, I guess it's about 24 inches right above my knee. Not really whatever that is, probably right about 2.2 feet. So your external fences, um, basically around the edge of the property, they're still barbed wire fences, and then you have a hot offset, and that works to keep the goats where they belong? Yes, yes. Uh, generally, put in the motor way, most the, the, the external fences, the, the barbed wire course is on the inside of, of the fence, inside the post. Towards, towards the stalk, right? Yes. Uh, I, I run the hot wire just on the house off the side of the post is what I prefer to do. Unless it's, a, unless that's if it's a road or something. If it's, if it's neighbor's property, I, I won't I run on my side of the fence. So basically if a goat comes up to the fence, they're going to stick their nose through it and they hit the barbed wire first, but then when they hit the hot on the other side, that's when they get jolted. Is that correct? Uh, I haven't watched too many of them yet. The kids get hit usually once or twice, and then they quit doing it. <laughs> they check it every once in a while. If the fence goes down too long, <laughs> well, I, I make jokes about that. Uh, you can turn the fence off on a cow for about a month, probably get by with it, uh, sheep about a week, and, and, and a goat about two hours. <laughs> <laughs> they have, have an internal sense of if the power's on or not, huh? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm exaggerating there, but that's, that's uh, the, the, it's, I, if somebody gets out, it's probably a goat. <laughs> but I, I think the thing to take home here is that um, you're using hot fence really as your tool to keep the sheep and goats where they're at. You're not using woven wire or things like that. Oh, no. Yeah. Yeah. On the field fences, yes. Talk a little bit about predator control, obviously, with sheep and goats. Coyotes are more of an issue. How do you manage that? What does that look like? Uh, well, I run a, uh, a single female llama and a single female donkey with each band. Uh, they just stay with them all the time. The, uh, they also, right now I have, uh, ooh, I got seven guard dogs. I got three at one place and, and 
store at the other place. Uh, guard dogs are cheap. I would not even attempt to do what I do with the sheep and goats without the guard dogs. What role do you think the the female llama and the female donkey provide? Do you think they're uh, additional protection beyond the on the guard dogs, or how does that look? Additional protection, yeah. I would not rely on the solely. Not 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 with use with my baby lambs on pasture. I would not rely on them solely. I think they. I know they help. I am. I have actually seen some individual cows which chase coyotes even when they don't have calves inside. So I've seen that a couple times. I've had individual cows that would do that. But I've got neighbors who lose one or two calves every year. They don't have dogs. They've got cattle. Do your sheep and, bond yeah. with the cows and vice versa a little bit, or is there much bonding that occurs between the two? Um, not really. Not really. But, yeah, my, my biggest paddock is maybe maybe 15 acres. So that you can't really get that far apart, in all honesty. Yeah. Uh, but they, they, no, they don't really, I, I wouldn't say they're bonded with them. What's the breed makeup of your guard dogs? Uh, whatever I can buy. Okay. <laughs> price. I, 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 uh, if I, knowing they only buy, uh, guard dogs that come from somebody else's running sheep or goats with them. And then just guard dogs. Uh, most of it's Pyrenees, Anatolian, uh, Akbosh, uh, any number of livestock guard dog breeds. I, I would avoid anything that's got any other breeding in it. Yes, Mike, as you think about people who might be considering adding sheep or goats to an operation, what are some key things you'd encourage them to think through, know and understand before they got into that? Well, fencing and guard and predator control. The one thing I'll mention, I don't know if you're going to bring it up or not. Anyway, I'll, I'll just mention, I'd have to look at the exact numbers. I'm running about 200 ewes and, and 50 cows right now. And those 50 cows, if they're 1,300 pounds, uh, how many thousand pound animal is? That's, uh, 55, uh, 70,000 pounds of cows. And, and those 200 ewes at, at 120 pounds a piece is, uh, about 30,000 pounds a sheep. Uh, my income, our income, historically going back before 2008, the sheep have always made more money per animal unit, per blue female animal unit than the cattle have. When you think about gross dollars per hundred weight of animal in terms of sales, uh, just roughly how would it compare across the three, the sheep, the goats, and the cattle. I can't remember exact numbers on that. I have, I have complete numbers on that on per animal unit basis, but I can't remember exactly what they were. Uh, let me look those numbers up. I get back at you to answer that question. Sure. The, the generally the, the per animal unit basis per thousand pound of brood female, red female, in other words, going back to two thousand eight. The sheep have always made more. The, the least number I can remember was 23% more than what the cows did. The most I remember that was actually of a completed year was, was 2020. Yeah, 2020, and it was three times the production of the cattle in terms of dollars, uh, net dollars worth of, of, of calves or lambs sold 
per thousand pound of cow or sheep. You, uh, the goats vary a lot. Uh, the production levels on the goats vary considerably. I use usually sell uh, close to 200% land crop. The goats vary a lot more than that. Well, Mike, I really appreciate your time today. Anything else you'd like to highlight about your operation or things that you think are unique, maybe would be of interest as we point towards wrapping this up? Uh, not that I can think of. I probably went on longer than I should have. <laughs> no, I, this is really a fun conversation. I Again, I think in Nebraska, there's just there's not a lot of sheep production. And so also I would say hair sheep, uh, that's a growing interest, I would say, and a lot more now than there was certainly 15, 20 years ago. But uh, what you're doing there, I think is pretty unique. And I think it'll be interesting to those who are listening. Well, I, I will point this out that uh, what's, some things have changed in the land market in my lifetime. I remember back in uh, 1980, for instance, uh, you would get docked for lambs that were over 120 pounds, slaughter lambs that were over 120 pounds. Now, the highest priced lambs are 45, 50 pound hair lambs that are going into the ethnic trade. Whereas you won't get docked for a lamb as long as it's a lamb, uh, there is no upper weight limit on, on slaughter lambs. The, the markets, the, the consumer demand has changed probably because of the, the change in the uh, ethnicity of the populations, you might guess. Yeah, it's pretty interesting to me to just look at goat and lamb reports, look at different weight breaks and uh, price per pound, total dollars per head. Look, okay. okay, I should bring $5 a pound now. Yeah, yeah, it's you. I, yeah, I, I mean, 40 pound kid goat would bring $5 a pound for a 40 pound kid goat. That's only going to dress out more than 10, 12 pounds of meat on it. And lambs are the same way. Yeah. And I, it'll be interesting to see what the next few years bring, if this is a, uh, I don't know, blip, so to speak, or a aberration, or we're going to continue to see this kind of demand looks good just because of the ethnic demand. And I would say the, I don't know what you want to call it, almost recreational aspect that uh, meat has brought a little bit, lamb, goat, some of the novelty. Yeah. And I think that's a change from where things were. But, but give me your perspective as well. What are your thoughts? No, I, I think as much as anything else, it's, it's the uh, uh, ethnicities of people that have been coming into this country. They, they, Many of them, where they came from, their societies, they land and go. These people are buying these, apparently, obviously buying them. Appreciate your time today, Mike. And you do have a Facebook sure, page uh, if yeah. people have interest and would like to learn more about you. Is that correct? Yes, yes, and to be welcome there, you get it. You're, it's uh, double M, is that correct? Yes, yes. Yep, so if you just put Mike Wallace, double M, Nelson, Nebraska, search for Facebook page there, Facebook page pops right up there. Again, appreciate your time today, Mike. Thanks for sharing sure. your experience and uh, how you got involved with the sheep, goats, and cattle there in your operation. Okay, thanks for asking, Aaron. You bet. Yep. Well, again, for more information on Mike and Fran Wallace and their operation there, they do have a Facebook page. would encourage you to check that out. A good source of information, just as they talk about the different species they have there, the integration of sheep, goats, and cattle in a single grazing operation.